was listening to a Hollywood personality speaking recently, and they just had an incredible experience. And they kept saying, amazing, amazing, amazing. They didn't know how to finish it. I wanted to tell them, amazing grace. That's what it's about. So good to see you this morning, and so much of a privilege to open God's Word. Would you stand with me as we turn to Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, for our morning reading. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning we begin a six-part series of messages based on Exodus 32. I've chosen to entitle this series, Lessons Learned on a Staycation. Now, like many of you, until the onset of COVID-19, I had never so much as heard the word staycation. In fact, I'm not sure it was a word until then. But during the worst days of COVID, most of us learned firsthand the difference between taking a vacation to Disneyland or New York City and spending our vacation time at home making the best of it. Now, by their very nature, staycations involve less travel, less activity, and nearly always less fun than vacations. And for this reason, staycations are rarely our choice, at least not our first choice. In fact, staycations are most often imposed on us, either by circumstances or health or our boss. And such was the case with the Israelites in our text for today. Having just spent several months in vigorous activity, traveling, fighting, squabbling, and experiencing the miraculous hand of God on an almost daily basis, Jehovah God imposed on them a year-long staycation at the base of Mount Sinai. But as unpleasant as this was for God's people, as much as they longed to get back on their journey to the land of promise, God's purpose for this season in their lives very soon became abundantly clear. God had brought them to this place. He had brought them to this moment in time to teach them lessons that could not be learned by those who have not stepped aside from their daily activities, their frenzied activities, long enough to be still and know that He is God, and that His purposes for us are always better, wiser, and more loving than our own intentions. 
I remember in my early days of ministry, I was just three years into pastoral ministry in North Hollywood, California, and for the first time our family was free to go back to Ohio and visit family. We were so looking forward to that, Sherry, myself, our two little boys, and uh, just prior to that trip, I came down with a sinus infection. The doctor said, no, 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 you can't fly. You just can't do that. So Sherry and the boys went ahead and I stayed in bed. I wasn't particularly happy with the circumstances and I was uh, letting God know about that in no uncertain terms. And then the Lord began to do something in my heart and he began to teach me some of those lessons that a young pastor needs to learn but has difficulty learning when he's busy trying to convert all the fruits and nuts of Southern California in a year or two. And as he got my attention, he began to teach me some difficult but important lessons. And I remember three, four days into this, I actually was aware that God was doing a very special work in my heart. It was about that time one of my elders called from the church and he said, Pastor, I'd like to come over. I know you're suffering with this. I'd like to come and bring a couple of the other elders and, and pray over you, pray for your healing. I thought for a minute and I said to him, that's a good thing to do. And I'd like you to do that, but not yet. He said, why not yet? I said, look, God is teaching me some, some lessons that a young pastor needs to learn. I have a feeling he's still got a few more things to teach me. If you come over here and pray for my healing and he heals me, I might never learn them. Could you wait a few days? He laughed, came, prayed, God heard and answered. I think this was the case described here in Exodus 32. God had imposed a staycation on his people Israel. And it's clear from the text they weren't particularly happy about it. But the lessons God would teach them here at Sinai were lessons that would last for generations centuries. Indeed, part of among those lessons were the Ten Commandments. These were lessons that would last until our Lord returns and then beyond into eternity. Well, with this brief backdrop for our thinking this morning, I want to launch into the series. The first of these six messages is this, the sad exchange. We're going to think together about the lessons God taught His people concerning their worship of a holy God. Note first, the story behind Israel's exchange of gods. The, uh, the incident recorded in our text for today occurred only a couple months after God had miraculously led Israel between two and three million of them, by the way, out of slavery in Egypt and across the Red Sea. First parting the waters for them and then in an instant causing the waters to come and collapse on the host of Pharaoh, so that in Exodus 14, 28, we read, not a one of them, chariot or the, their riders, survived. But that was only the beginning of God's miraculous provision for Israel along the way. He had led them in victory against the Amalekites. He had provided water and, and food for two to three million people in a wilderness where they had neither water nor food. He had resolved one and then another problem. Whenever adversaries had come against them, God had been present to miraculously care for them. And then, as if that weren't enough, when they arrived at Sinai, He came to them as they were encamped at the foot of this mountain. He came to them in such a display of power and glory that they trembled for fear of Him. 
we had time this morning, we'd go over to Exodus 19 and read of God's appearance to them in smoke and in fire, in lightning and thunder, in trumpet blast, until they heard the voice of God in such a manner that they begged Moses not to let God speak directly to them again. They feared that they would die if they heard this incredible, marvelous voice of this holy God. Oh, Moses, they said, you speak for him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses himself was terrified that day in the presence of God's glory. I think that not a one of us here today has, has probably ever observed the awesome glory, the power, and holiness of God in this compelling, this unbelievable manner. At best, we felt a twinge, a sense, a, a hint of his holiness and, and his glory when perhaps for just a moment the pastor has stayed a little longer than usual on the theme of sin and our need to repent. Others of us have experienced the fierce power of God unleashed in nature at some time or another. We've been present for a great fire or flood, a hurricane or tornado. Some years ago, our family was in Seabrook, South Carolina, that little island off of, just off of Charleston, when um, hurricane forces from the south came toward us and spawned off a number of tor tornadoes. And we got the word that tornadoes were coming to the island. It was now, there was not time to leave, so we huddled. There was a stairwell and a, a, an area underneath the stairs, and 13 of us got together. Little kids, babies, mom and dad, grandparents, we all got together in that one room, real close fellowship. And we listened on a little radio as the progress of that tornado was announced. And it was announced that it was now approaching Seabrook. That was the island we were on. Tiny little island. How could it come that close? Be that close to us? And then they announced that it was now ashore on Seabrook. And they began to announce, and I've never heard this done before, but in this area they actually announced specifically where that funnel was. And they said it's on such and such a street. And it's on such and such a street. And then lo and behold, they named our street. And then they started calling out addresses. It's, it, it's this street. It's in this area. They actually called out the address of our house. And as they did that, the house shook and we heard palm trees falling in the front and the windows in the back collapsed and the water came rushing in and what was the biblical term? We were sore afraid. Dramatic events. In such dramatic events and moments, God seems awesome and big. We find ourselves simultaneously filled to overflowing with feelings of fear and adoration for a God so big. There's this longing to draw still closer to a God who's so awesome and at the same time to run from his presence. I believe this is what Israel was experiencing on this occasion. There's a, a musical group called Mercy Me. It sings a song I can only imagine. They're talking about imagining what it would actually be like to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And they sing these words, I can only imagine, surrounded by his glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? The people of God described in our text for today have only recently been fully immersed in the awesome power and presence of Almighty God. How unlikely then 
How unthinkable that the events of Exodus 32 should appear as they do in the aftermath of their deliverance from Egypt and of God's stunning appearance to them at Sinai. Just 40 days after they trembled before His presence, these events take place. Surrounded by His glory, what will they feel? What will they do? We read in Exodus 32.1. Here's what they did. They gathered around Aaron and they said, Come make us gods who will go before us. Really? And the next day the people rose early and sacrificed offerings to their new god. They feasted and drank and threw a party to celebrate their new god. Well, God is still on the mountaintop speaking to Moses delivering the Ten Commandments and the covenant between himself and his people. In the valley below, his people were exchanging him for a new God. Do you know what it means to exchange something? You you know what that means, right? That's when someone gives you a really neat gift and you thank them profusely for it, and then a few days later you begin to think, I'd really like it in a different color. I, I, I understand they have them automatic now. There's new features they're putting out every week, I read. So what do you do? You, you take it and you send it back and you exchange it for one that suits your taste better. The psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 20, describes what happened. He said they exchanged their glorious God. Jeremiah, the prophet, describing this time in, in the history of God's people, in Jeremiah 2.11 says, Has a nation ever changed its gods? But my people have exchanged their glorious God. Coming to the New Testament, Paul writing in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. I don't know if you've ever picked this up, but he's really picking up this story. From Exodus 32, and he says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. This brings us to a second major consideration this morning. We've been looking at the storyline, the context for this event. But I want us to see now a description of what the people of God actually hoped to exchange for their God. It is possible that the Israelites thought of their request for Aaron to make us gods that will go before us, not so much as a request for a new God, but merely as a request for a physical representation of Jehovah, much as at a later date they wanted a human personal king with a face rather than God Almighty as their king. And two, it's wise to know that these are people who had recently lived among the Egyptians who, although the Egyptians had only one major god, the sun god, had literally hundreds of representations of this one god. One of the most popular of these being what? A strong young bull. It would be easy to see how in the absence of Moses there were were some who were clamoring in the camp for a leader with a physical presence, a a faith, charisma, someone they could follow in their wilderness journeys. Furthermore, there is no mention in the text here of an exchange suggesting that this is not how the Israelites viewed what they were doing. Perhaps they thought of the calf, the bull, as little more than an aid to their worship of Jehovah. But whatever they were thinking, When they approached Aaron with this request, 
it was in direct violation of God's commands. In Exodus 24, we read the word of God. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to it. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And yet that's exactly what they did. In verse 8, we read the words of God. God said they have made themselves an idol. They have bowed down to it and they have said, There are your gods, Israel. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. By the way, the decision of God's people to make images, physical objects that would aid them in their worship is a decision that has been revisited by God's people in every age since then. Our answers, we should say we ask ourselves at what point do our physical reminders of God, pictures, statues, icons, crosses, and the like, have just the opposite effect, causing us to refocus our attention not on Him, but on the objects themselves. I was raised in a Quaker background where that was a deep concern. So we had meeting houses, we had no crosses, we had nothing at the front, we had no pulpit per se, it was just a plain building. We were afraid we'd get caught up in the images and the representations and that was our answer to this. Other churches take other approaches to this. But what was happening here in Exodus 32 was not a matter of deciding what physical symbols of their faith would be appropriate or pleasing to God and which ones would not be. God's condemnation of their actions makes it abundantly clear that what they had done constituted an actual exchange of one God for another. He says, they've turned away from my commandments. They've made themselves idols. They have bowed down to those idols. They have offered sacrifices to it. He virtually says to them, you've rewritten history. You know I'm the God that brought you out of bondage in Egypt. And here you are, attributing what I have done, the glories of my miraculous deliverance for you, to other gods that you've made with your hands. Elsewhere in Scripture, as we've already seen, when God refers back to this event in Israel's history, He always insists it was an exchange of God's. More specifically, it was an exchange of the glory, the glory of the Almighty God of heaven and earth, the Creator of all that is. An exchange of the glory of this awesome, uh, indescribable God for the glory of a cow. No, not even a cow, but the carved image of a cow. Now, I am not a farmer. I think you know that. I'm not the son of a farmer. I am the son of a milkman, but I'm not the son of a farmer. But I had a granddad who was a dairy farmer. And uh, over the years, I must tell you that I have more than once looked into the face of a cow. Even some blue ribbon cows at the Star County Fair back in Ohio. Um, I find it almost impossible to imagine Exchanging the glory of Almighty God for that of a blue ribbon winning cow. The very thought of that kind of an exchange drove me back to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44. You remember that great passage where Isaiah is describing idols and idol makers and idol worshipers? And he talks about the foolishness of what they're doing. He says, nobody stops to think. Nobody seems to have any knowledge or understanding. And if you read then through Isaiah 44, he describes the foolishness of taking a piece of wood, carving a god out of it, and then the wood that's left over you burn to cook your meal on. But while you're having your meal, you bow down to the other portion of that wood and worship it as though it was an altar, a god. 
There are, unfortunately, examples in our own day of men who make idols fashioned from the sun or the moon, like the sun or the moon, or animals, even cows. Our little son, grandson, Zach, had a friend named Gabriel who, who was out of a Hindu background. And Gabriel came to stay at their home for a period of time. And my daughter-in-law explained to his mother that they were a Christian family and they would not hesitate to speak of Christ openly. And if Gabriel was there, he'd simply need to understand that. They wouldn't pull back from that. Gabriel's mother said that was all right. And so after a few months of that, she began to realize that they were talking a lot about Jesus and they were sharing their conviction of a a God, an invisible God who rules the universe. And one day, little Gabriel came to the home of my daughter-in-law and son with a little booklet. And he said to Zach very proudly, now I want to show you my family gods. And he went through a book with a whole list of different gods and different images. And then he turned to one page and he said, this is our favorite family God. And he showed my little grandson, Zach, a picture of, of something that had an elephant's head and a man's body. And he said, this is our family God. And Zach gasped. He said, wait here a minute. He ran off. He got his older brother. Zach was about six at the time. Ran off, got his older brother, uh, uh, Sam. And he said, Sam, come here. You've got to come see. Um, and, and as they were coming back, my daughter-in-law said she heard him saying to Sam, look, Sam, Gabriel's God is a cartoon character. <laughs> Those of us gathered here today will no doubt agree with Zach's assessment. How foolish we say. A God with the head of an elephant and the face of a cow. Imagine that. But we're not without our gods. And they are every bit as foolish as those of Gabriel or those of the Israelites in our text for today. I remember some years ago, one of the young men in my congregation in Southern California invited me to go with him trap shooting. I'd never gone trap shooting, but I said, I want to be with him. I want to share Christ with him. And so I went and we were, we were shooting trap. I guess that's what you do. I don't know what you shoot. Clay something. Anyhow, the only time I've ever done that in my life. And as we did, he said to me, reach into my wallet and get out some money and, and we'll get, we'll get uh, some Pepsi, some Coke, something to, something to drink. It's getting hot out here. I said, okay. So I did. And as I reached in, a piece of paper fell out of his wallet and I reached down and picked it up. And on this piece of paper, this tattered, worn little piece of paper was a list of things. Just a list of, I, I wouldn't know how to describe them to you other than that they struck me as what we now call guilty, guilty pleasures. I said, Bill, what's this? He turned red. Oh, pastor, he said, those are all the things I know I would have to give up if I came to Jesus. They were silly. They were, they were, it was the silliest little list of things I've ever seen, but it broke my heart, and I thought, that's what we do, don't we? He traded in the glories of God for a list of personal guilty pleasures. Every day we're tempted to exchange his glory for the foolishness, the lies, the impotence of lesser gods who are no gods at all. May I give you some examples? Bear with me this morning as I share with you some of the examples I observe around me and I struggle with at times in my own life. Yes. 
We're tempted to exchange his wisdom for the latest findings of our universities, our tech labs, or our PC friends. I had an uncle, Richard, who died just a few years ago. He was a brilliant man. He was a nuclear physicist and worked for NASA and had a number of important government jobs. Later, he went on to university to teach. Twice in his life, once as a young man in his late teens and another time in his mid-40s, he found himself homesick on a staycation, reached out and found a Bible and read through it. Both times he had a conversion experience. Both times he said, oh God, I've missed the truth of it all in my university studies and all that I know, I don't know you. And he surrendered to Christ. Both times he turned around, went back to the university, and within a short while he put that aside for the knowledge, the information, the science of our day. We're tempted to exchange our trust in him and his sovereign plan for trust in our political party, our political leaders, our medical system, the latest technological discoveries, or in a growing bank account. We follow the science or we follow the money. We follow whatever it is we think will bring us security. And we trade our God for that. We're tempted to exchange the delight we once found in Him in times of quiet meditation and prayer. We exchange it for the endless stimulation we find streaming from our TV or an iPad or the momentary excitement we find in trying new cuisines or in sexual images that cross in front of our faces on a screen. We trade in our delight for God for delight for other things. When I was 18 years of age, uh, I had one of the greatest temptations of my life, and it was silly. I look back on it and I say it was silly. I was one of those kids that grew up, and I, I was good at a number of things, but never really good at anything, until one day I discovered tennis. I was about 11 years of age, and I began to play tennis, and I began to play more and more, and I found that I, I didn't win at other things, but I won at tennis. And, and that year, in my senior year at high school, I won I won every match I played, and I was feeling so good, and I, I was spending all my time playing tennis, and I was on the courts, and even on Sundays, I could hardly hear what the pastor was saying. I was waiting to get out of the service so I could run out and play tennis. We were on the way here this morning. We saw some gentlemen in 45-degree weather out playing tennis. Sherry said, how stupid. I said, I didn't used to think so. I used to do that. Tennis became my life. It wasn't anything, but, but it was to me everything because I finally found something a guy could win at and feel good about himself. And for a season in my life, I exchanged the delight I had once found in him for the delight I found in winning. We're tempted to exchange the God who is, the God of Scripture, for the God we want, a designer God who makes us feel good. Not long ago, we were out driving. We went past a church, and I put my brakes on, said to Sherry, is there anybody behind me? No, I backed up. I had to read the sign one more time. The sign boldly on the front of the church was the Christian Church of Health and Prosperity. They were not only preaching it, they were advertising it. They'd taken it as their name. We give up the God of Scripture for the God we want, a designer God. We're tempted to exchange the God of holiness for a permissive God. The God of thou shalt not for the God of happy days and a good time. And, and a God for Christians 
who like us want to eat, drink, and be merry and, and have a party and do whatever we please. Make no doubt about it, Christians. We have more than a few idols in our age. They just don't have the face of a cow. If you look closely, you'll see they have the face of a serpent who comes in the form of an angel, who comes in the form of light. Not always bad things, but things that compete for our commitment and our love and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so far we've considered the story behind this, this incredible exchange of, of God's, and we've seen the, uh, a little bit of what it was they hoped to accomplish. Time's getting away from me, but very quickly I'm going to talk with you for just a, a minute or two about the motives. The motives that drove these men to do what they did. It's interesting that their motives were really very basic. Not all that different from our own. The first was their impatience. In verse 1, we read, When the people of God saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. How long? Forty days. By the way, God says in verse 8, They have quickly turned away from me. And they said, It's been so long. And God said, They've quickly turned away from me. Impatience, I believe, continues to be one of the greatest motives behind our decision to look elsewhere for help, elsewhere for deliverance, elsewhere for a God who hears us. We hear people say, I prayed about it and nothing changed. I served the Lord faithfully for years and I'm still waiting. The psalmist himself said, how long, oh, how long, Lord, must I wait? In 2 Peter verses, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, In the last days, scoffers will come, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Everything continues just as it always has been. Nothing changes. How long are we going to have to wait? Impatience continues to be perhaps the number one reason why God's people are tempted to exchange him for another God. Second, and, and closely related to impatience, is boredom. Yeah. Boredom. We say, yeah, yeah, God's done some pretty spectacular stuff back in those days in Egypt. And, and yeah, I think this stuff at Sinai, that was pretty good too. But what have you done for me lately? I'm amazed at the capacity to become bored with God almost overnight. We send our young people away to camp. They have a wonderful experience. They come home and tell the story of God's work in their life. And then three days later, they're back at school. And mm-mm. Talk with pastors about the difference between Sunday morning's high and Monday morning's blues. Just about every pastor I know will tell you Monday morning is a terrible time. I'm convinced that those who remain vigorous in their faith over the long haul are those who continue to rehearse the glories of God and the work of God in their lives day by day. My dad was an incredible, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. People would say to me on occasion, what makes your dad so different, so special? Why is it that he's always got a ready word for the Lord? And I would say to them, it's because, it's because he never got over it. 
He said, what do you mean? He never got over what? He never got over. He would, he would say when I was 19 years of age and the tears would begin to come and he would describe how God met him, changed him, and he never got over that. Some of us have gotten over it. My personal observation is this, that the church is filled with bored Christians. The God who once got a hearty hallelujah or all right now has to settle for a yawn. A third motive for them was, was worry about the future. They said, come make us, make gods for us who will go before us as Moses. We don't know what's happened to him. Okay, God has brought us thus far, but what now? Did you hear the morning news? Things are going, oh, they're going to hell in a handbasket. By the way, what's, what's behind this motive to exchange gods? What's producing all the worry about the future? It's a lack of trust. It's a lack of faith, isn't it? So what do we do? We go in search of other gods to bolster him up, to back him up, to come up with a plan B. These are almost always gods with a face. They are, they are gods that we can control and let's feel better about Finally, there's the desire for a more permissive God. This is a motive that plagues the people of God in every generation. Up on the mountain, God is giving commandments. Down in the valley, the children of God are throwing a party. We read in verse 6, they indulge in revelry. That word refers to, we're going to look at this more carefully next week. It refers to nakedness, immorality, and partying. And the God with the face of a cow, he didn't mind at all. He didn't care what they did. He didn't care what kind of a party they threw. He didn't even blink. Of course, he didn't do anything. He was a cow. He wasn't even a cow. He was the image of a cow. He'd put up with anything. Now, that's the kind of God we want. The motive to find a God who will let us do what we want to do and not be a killjoy is still with us today. I have so much more I want to say this morning, and I don't have time to get there, but we have five more weeks. <sighs> we will get there. Let me just say this as we come to a close this morning. This is a warning. The decision to exchange the God of Scripture for another God is seldom a conscious decision. Our love for him grows cold over the years, and we begin to take to ourselves other lovers and other affections, and we don't even know it. We go through a season of disappointments when God seems to be distant and, and silent, and we start looking elsewhere for assistance, for something or someone to put our trust in. Our boast, which once was Christ and Christ alone, it's more and more a boast about our team or our club or the new doctor or even the new pastor, but not a boast in Christ. With the increase of violence and worldwide chaos, our plans for the future are less and less a subject of our prayer life and more and more an occasion for political and community activity, or we take the matter into our own hands. More Christians these days are buying guns to have at home under their pillow than are praying, I sometimes think. 
until Christ is just one more helper, one more option in what has become a pantheon of modern-day gods. These are the gods of our age, not, not gods of stone and wood and gold, but addictions, fascinations with new lovers, putting our trust in technology or in a political party or individual. Science. Follow the science. And all the while I hear Isaiah saying in Isaiah 44, 19, and nobody, nobody stops to think. Usually our applications after a message like this are, this week go home and do something. <laughs> I want to be, be very specific and very direct this morning if I might and suggest to you that we have an application right here, right now. We're about to go into a season, uh, communion. You know what we do at communion time? We stop and we think. We think about the glories of Jesus Christ. What Paul said, was talking about when he spoke of the glories of God in the face of Christ. Hey, we, we've come to know glories that the Israelites never knew. They heard the trumpet, they saw the lightning and the thunder, but they didn't know squat about Jesus. You've experienced Jesus. You've seen something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, not physically, but in your life, in your heart. Take some time this morning. Stop and think about the glories of the Savior you have, the God you worship. And then think about one more thing. Ask the Spirit of God to show you if anywhere in your life you've begun to take to yourself a new lover, something you delight in more than you delight in Him, something you trust in more than you trust in Him, something that's taking His place in your life. In just a moment... Pastor Doug's going to come and lead us into the communion time. Will you do that as, our, as we have this time of preparation of our hearts this morning? Use it to stop and think. Little children, John said, the Apostle John said, little children, um, what's that line? It's escaped me right in the moment I wondered. Little children, he said, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Idols.